Okay, let's, uh, let's uh, begin this evening talk. I come to make your lives more miserable. <laughs> no, I don't really. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about something tonight which is, the, in a sense, the wellspring of this tradition from which we're teaching. And also, I think, the, perhaps the, the governing force behind the impetus, impetus to engage in what we're doing here, to engage in this meditative activity. Um, more correctly, as we kind of put it earlier on today, to engage in this cultivation, this extremely important business of trying to cultivate certain states of mind, um, particularly in this tradition, to cultivate states of friendliness, states of insight, states of calmness. You know, so we're, we're deliberately trying to evoke something, perhaps that we get a sense of as being absent in our lives. Now, this person who lived two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha, uh, not a name, by the way, just an epithet, an epithet of somebody um, who was said to have done something remarkable. Um, but if I actually kind of translate this term, the Buddha, and its kind of meaning um, from the original language, it doesn't sound so remarkable, because it actually means somebody who's woken up. Yeah. Something we do daily, isn't it? Every morning. You know, you know, hear the bell tomorrow at 6.30 in the morning, and hopefully you'll wake up, but it's not that kind of awakening. Yeah. In, in a strange sort of way, we might wake up in this very ordinary sense of the word, every morning, but we sleepwalk through life. Yeah? We sleepwalk through life. We do the same things. We often think similar thoughts. Uh, we're trapped often in habit patterns. We project into the future and we often dwell in the past. And so much of our life is spent actually avoiding what we discover in the present moment. Now I want to read you to start off, and I'm going to weave my talk in the sense round this, which is not a piece of Buddhist material, it actually comes from a 17th century philosopher and mathematician um, who was working in France, somebody who some of you may know called Pascal. And in one of his pensées, in one of his thoughts, which were unpublished at his death, he says this, and I think this is probably the perfect rationale, in, in a sense, for some of the things that we're doing here uh, and why we do them. And I just want to read this to you, and then, then I will kind of start to unpack it a little bit. He says this, We never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming and were trying to hurry it up. Or we recall the past as if to stay its too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us and do not think of the only one that does. So vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the only one that is. 
the fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And if we find it enjoyable, we are sorry to see it slip away. We give it, or we try to give it the support of the future. And we think, how are we going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can never be sure of reaching? Let each of us examine their thoughts. They will find them wholly concerned with the past or with the future. We almost never think of the present, and if we do think of it, it's only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone is our end. Thus, we never actually live. What we do is we hope to live. And since we are always planning how we are going to be happy, it's absolutely inevitable that we never shall be so. That's, in a way, as I say, the perfect rationale, in a sense, for why we engage in this. And much of what I consider to be the fount of the Buddha's teaching, in a way, is present in, in what is being said there. And one particular dimension, this is the dimension I really want to focus in on tonight, is why are we constantly planning ahead? Why are we planning to be happy and never finding happiness? And Pascal says it's because the present hurts in some way. Now, the Buddha didn't quite put it that way. He put it in a way which I think is even more pragmatic than that. He put it in a way that says, well, this present that we live in, we find generally pretty unsatisfactory. Yeah? We're dissatisfied with it. It often doesn't present us with what we want at this moment. And so if you think of yourselves just sitting here at this moment in time, you know, you might think, well, the room could be a little bit lighter. It's a bit cold in here. Um, the person sitting up in front is rather boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the cushions are not comfortable enough. I'd rather lie down. You know, actually, I'd rather go to bed, really. <laughs> you know, all of these things that might be passing through your mind at this present moment, um, generally they're about dissatisfaction, aren't they? They're generally about something that we don't want at this moment in time. We want something else. We want the more comfortable cushion. We want to be somewhere else. Um, we want it a little bit warmer, whatever it might be. So basically, as you sit there at this moment in time, as you sit there, then we're talking about us often discovering at this very moment a sense of dissatisfaction lying at the heart of our experience. Yeah. Now, Go to popular books on Buddhism, where they usually get this almost totally wrong. They translate this state as being suffering. 
I don't think it's suffering at all. There is suffering, and you know, some of you might actually be going through it at this moment. I don't know. You know, suffering is losing somebody you care for, being very ill, you know, confronting death. You know, there is suffering in life. There is no doubt about that. And at some point in time, if we haven't already encountered it, we will encounter it. Yeah. As uh, there's this uh, American Buddhist magazine, which some of you might have come across, called Tricycle. Have anybody seen this thing called Tricycle? Yeah. Well, they did a, quite a number of years ago. They did a spoof movie poster in it. You know, like they say, "Coming to you soon," and it said, "Coming to you soon." Old age, sickness, death. <laughs> yeah. And in a sense, those are the things that we could associate as being real suffering. You know, these, this is suffering. So when you see this written in popular books on Buddhism that you know, the Buddha teaches suffering, actually not, he's not. He's teaching something else. He's teaching something which includes suffering, but actually for the most part our ordinary, common, everyday experience is one of rubbing up against life which isn't quite right. Yeah. Often it's that sort of friction that we encounter when you get the thing you want and it's not quite right. <laughs> you ever had that experience? Yeah. You know, it was Oscar Wilde who once said, "There's, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing worse than not getting what you want than getting what you want." Yeah. And that is much of our experience that things are not quite right in our lives. And so in a way to come back to the starting place, you know, why we engage in these practices, why we engage in this coming to the present moment, developing insight, developing calmness, developing friendliness, all these forms of cultivation which actually in traditional Buddhism are just part of the strategies that the Buddha gives us to deal with life. And the meditative part is only one part of it, but it's a very, very important part. Why do we come to this? Why, what brings you to a place like Gaia House? You know, what brings you to practicing meditation, perhaps, in your daily life? It's often a sense of either realized overtly or sometimes not realized so much overtly, but sensed a sense of dissatisfaction running through our lives, of something not being quite right with it. Yeah. We put labels on it in the modern world, don't we? In many ways, we call it stress. You know, we call it you know, um, busyness. All the things that we encounter in our ordinary, everyday existence where life is getting faster, uh, for whatever reasons, um, places are getting busier, we encounter these. But even when we're not engaged in those things, when we're not engaged in our work, which often demands a tremendous amount of us, our families, which often can demand a lot of us as well, often when we're left alone, we still sense dissatisfaction. Yeah? And that is what the Buddha really is, in a way, his starting point for an inquiry into why does that happen? Now, for some people, it might not. All I can say is I rejoice in their merit if they don't feel it. Yeah. And if they really, really don't feel that, then, then there's no kind of impetus, is there, to really be involved 
in something like this. But I think what brings us often to places like our house, to these contemporary forms of meditational practice, is a sense that something is not quite right in our lives, that we want something to be different. Yeah. Now, the normal way of wanting something to be different is I want everything else to be different. I want the world to change. Yeah. That's what I would often refer to as arguing with the unarguable. Yeah. We're picking a fight with something that we know who's going to win. It's not going to, usually going to be us in that way. We pick a fight with the world. Um, because the world, from the Buddha's perspective, will actually, really, in a way, never give us what we want. And there's one good reason for that, and this is the foundation of much of what we experience in terms of dissatisfaction. And I say much because not all, by any means. Much of what we find as dissatisfaction is because, and you might have noticed this, things change. Have you noticed that? Yeah, things change. Yeah. To put it more formally, the way you'll encounter it in Buddhist texts, if you ever go and have a look at them, uh, you'll encounter it as being the truth of impermanence. Things are impermanent. Yeah. Actually, a lot of our suffering, and I mean that in the big sense of the word, that I highlighted in, in, that, in you know, that spoof movie poster that was there, actually is again about impermanence, isn't it? Sickness, old age, death. That's impermanence. Yeah. That's the human condition. That's the existential uh, condition that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Working our way to old age, and no matter how well we look after ourselves, often sickness, and eventually, of course, death. And this is not to be morbid about it. It's just to kind of face the existential realities of our lives. And so that's one big, big part of it. That's a big part. But there is all those little daily impermanences you know, of things changing. You know, the things that don't remain the same that we would like to remain the same. For example, your mood. Yeah. And it goes from being happy to being sad. Yeah. You don't want it, do you? You can sense somehow, sometimes in the background of that moodedness, of that, um, that you know, perhaps slightly elevated mood, the seeds of it coming down and moving into something different. Our conditions in the world often change, don't they? Our employment, our, you know, our families change. You know, you, you, if you've got children, they grow up and they leave home. Um, relationships change. We're always actually negotiating change. Yeah. The... Uh, German language poet Rilke, in one of his poems in the Duino Elegies, um, once remarked, we're in this world forever taking leave. Yeah. That's our condition. We're always looking at the passing passage of time. We are embedded in a world which is changing. Now, of course, there is a, an exception to all this, because that's the negative view, isn't it? Yeah, that's the negative changes. But when change works for you, 
yeah, where you embrace it. Yeah. You go into, you know, hopefully when you get back from this retreat, you'll go into work and your boss will go to you, I've just given you a salary rise. You don't go, no, I don't want that. <laughs> Please, no, no salary rise for me. You don't do that, do you? You embrace it. You embrace that form of change. So when change works for you, you're embracing it. You know, when the headache goes, when you overcome sickness, you know, you're not going, please don't let it change. I don't want that to change. You're not doing that at all. What we do is we embrace those forms of changes whilst rejecting those in a sense that don't work for us. Again, this is all part of this sense of dissatisfaction, but only certain forms of change do we find unsatisfactory. That which don't, in a way, correspond or coincide with our desires. Yeah. So one of the things we're encountering again and again in our daily lives is this change. Yeah. We're encountering it again and again and again. Now, this word, I won't keep it a secret, it's probably the only word I'll expect you to remember out of um, the original languages. This word that's used originally in Pali and in Sanskrit, which are the Indic languages <clears throat> or you know, early Buddhism was preserved in, particularly the language of Pali, which is a dialect, effectively, a, you know, a sort of more vernacular-type dialect. Uh, this word is called dukkha, which is a lovely word, which is the word that usually gets translated as suffering. Now, you've heard me say that actually it doesn't just translate as that. Some of it may be suffering, but we live a spectrum of experiences, some of which might be on the top end of the scale, which we would call suffering. But actually, on our day-to-day -day lives, just our ordinary, average, everyday lives, we dukkha at a fairly low grade. Yeah? Low grade. I had this described to me once. I, I was very fortunate when I was in India, when I was living in India, uh, to study with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors. And he always described it like this. He said that um, dukkha wasn't like being stabbed. It wasn't really painful and sharp and horrible. He said it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Yeah? It's quite a graphic image, isn't it? Slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. I think there's a lot actually in that metaphor, in that image there, which is you know, one of repetition, for example. You know, something about the repetitive grind, isn't there, of life, of doing things again and again and again, being trapped into a sense of circularity. Does that feel familiar for anybody? You ever feel like you're doing the same stuff again? Yeah? There is that circularity to things. Habit, we might call it. And the one thing we know about, often about these things, is they don't start off very painful. Like rubbing your arm against a brick wall. It doesn't start off enormously painful, does it? In fact, you see cows rubbing themselves against things like that, you know, to ease the itch. Yeah. And in a way, and again, I'm going to play on this a little bit as we go through, that's actually what habit does. It's like trying to ease that discomfort, to scratch it. You know? But we keep on scratching it till it starts to bleed. 
you know, and become painful and infected. You know, we keep doing the same thing again and again and again. So it doesn't start off painful, but ends up often through repetition as being extremely painful. There is another word which is used to describe, in a sense, the circularity of experience. Now, in traditional cultures, Buddhist cultures, this often refers to a sense of the circularity of birth, death, and rebirth. And I'm not going to go there. That's something I'm not going to deal with that tonight. Because it actually has another meaning, much more of a psychological meaning. And that meaning is that sense of circularity that we find ourselves in. If you want to have a sense of birth, death, and rebirth, it's happening every moment, isn't it? I get born into similar states again and again and again. If I don't deal with the underlying habit patterns which generate the distress that I find myself in. So... Through underlying psychological patterns, um, ways of doing things, propensities to think and behave in all sorts of ways which become habituated, I find myself having, I find myself having similar problems. Yeah? I don't know if this sounds again familiar. You know, and you think to yourself, do you have that any occur to any of you? Why am I doing this again? I thought I'd overcome this. Yeah? I thought I'd dealt with it. And that sense of deja vu is often very real. (laughs) It's because you are doing it again. (laughs) Now, in a way, what I'm starting to explore with you this evening is the reason why this character who we call the Buddha, as I said, the one who has woken up, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second, This is the starting point of his investigation and this is the starting place for why, in a sense, that this, what we're doing here in a retreat, is such an integral part of his strategy for the alleviation of the kind of ordinary distress that we find ourselves in on a day-to-day basis. Now, we do try to deal with our distress. There's no doubt about that. Um, We try to deal with it with the tools we have available, the cultures we live in, and the sorts of things that are accessible to us. We try to deal with it. We try to deal with either the the low-grade pain that we have, the low-grade dissatisfactions that we encounter with life, or the high-grade ones, by trying to, in a sense, avoid them. Or damp them down a bit. So that's not at the forefront of our experience. So we are trying to deal with that. There is no doubt about it. But from the Buddha's perspective, this perspective, obviously, of these meditation traditions that you're being either introduced to or... You know, furthering, if you're already familiar with them, this is what they're meant to address. This is what these traditions are meant to address. Because the ways that we normally have, and actually in ancient India, it wasn't that different. You know, people tried to deal with things in a way similar to the way we deal with things now. 
you know, culturally, they might have been different. You know, we might try to deal with some of our pains and assuage some of the problems of existence, I don't know, with buying ourselves the latest car or the latest house. In ancient India, it would have been the newest elephant yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Or all the kinds of stuff that you know, still in a way is there, the gold, the silver. You find all these things mentioned in, in these ancient texts, gold, silver, Slave girls, no, we don't have that these days. But, you know, there are all sorts of things that are there in those texts which, if you make the relevant changes, are seen as, again, ways that we try to deal with things. Often it can be trying to buy our way out of suffering, buy our way, to, way out of dissatisfaction and distress. This is, yeah. This is a common strategy. It didn't really differ hugely, although the objects might differ quite considerably, but it didn't differ as a strategy hugely from what we do today. I don't know if you noticed, it's a failed project. <laughs> Try buying your way out of distress. Yeah. How long does the sense of satisfaction last with any object that you might acquire that you really, really wanted because you told yourself, if I really get that, I'd be happy. How long does it last? Just kind of think for yourself, how long does it last? How long does that sense of satisfaction stay with us before there's a kind of repeating phrase that comes up? If only I had, I'd be happy. Yeah. yeah, and that phrase, in a sense, with the X, if only I had X, and you, you know, I leave that you to fill in the blank there. If you had something that filled that in, and had in the past something that went with that, how long does it last? That's a real question to ask yourself. How long does the sense of peace, contentment, and satisfaction last before we're perhaps on to the next thing? Now, only using things as an example here, you know, material objects, because they're very prevalent in our society, but it can be a job, a relationship. All of the things, all of the, if you like, all of the aspects of the world which are so familiar with us, which we think externally are going to create some degree of contentment or happiness for you. If you want to know, if you like, of the death knell of a relationship, say to your partner, make me happy. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work, does it? It's a huge burden you would place on somebody else by saying, make me happy. Yeah. And in a way, that's what we do to the world and all of its goodies, and let's not deny that there's an awful lot of stuff out there which is fine and it's fantastic, um, but we place too heavy a demand on it. You know, even on those things that, you know, which are nice to have, which are pleasurable and all the rest of it, but we place too heavy a demand on it, which is actually we're in a way psychologically demanding of that thing whatever it is, now I said it in relationships, but even with material things, you're kind of going to it, make me happy. Yeah? It's too heavy a demand. 
Yeah. The Buddha used a very graphic image about this. And he said like this search for material things to make us happy was a bit like a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop. And what happens was the butcher throws the dog a bone which has no flesh on it, but is merely smeared with blood. Yeah. And what the dog does is it chews the bone again and again and again and again, looking for nutrition out of that bone, yeah. looking for some sustenance. Does that ever feel like us? Yeah. Looking for some sustenance in the things that we chew over again and again and again? Yeah. Ever been caught in a habit pattern? Again, I can, kind of want to keep throwing things out to you here. Ever get caught in a habit pattern? And you think, well, I'll keep on doing this. I'll give it one more go. In the sheer disbelief, it hasn't provided you with happiness yet. Yeah. I'll keep on doing it. Why do we do that? Yeah. Why do we do that? And this is, the, this is, in a sense, part of the pathos of the human condition. Part of the pathos is, actually, that's all we know, often. These are the strategies we know. They're very, very familiar to us. We try to shore up, also in this sense of dissatisfaction, we try to shore up that which is slipping away from us. Yeah, we try to make permanent that which is impermanent. Yeah. Because it somehow gets associated that in permanence there is happiness. In impermanence there is unhappiness. Yeah. We look for things to be stable. We look for people to be stable, don't we? You know, to, in a sense, have that stability, that permanence. There's nothing worse than a partner can do to you than change. Yeah. Now, this is very serious. I mean, I was saying to a group quite recently, when I was teaching in Manchester years ago, we used to have a catchment area which was very local. When I used to be um, at Manchester University, used to be a very local area, and a lot of the people who used to come into higher education in those days were, you know, this is back in the early 90s, used to be women um, from the local catchment area. I think the divorce rate was about 90% of women coming into higher education. They're literally, their men couldn't take the change you know, in women becoming educated in that way. And that gives you one, you know, one sense of, actually, we don't like changes. Yeah. Particularly among those close to us, we don't like those changes. Now, this is a long way of getting round to, in a sense, unpacking this word dukkha, because one, part, one aspect of dukkha and the dukkha that we experience is impermanence that we find as unsatisfactory. Yeah that which we encounter as being unsatisfactory. You know, those little changes in daily life, the little, the little breakdowns, the things that don't work. The ghost story M.R. James once wrote a story called The Malice of Inanimate Objects. <laughs> you know, when they don't work on you. It's almost, it's almost personal, isn't it? <laughs> now, in a way, what I've said to you so far this evening, I hope, hasn't been a great revelation. Yeah. Hasn't been a great revelation. 
Now, in terms of intellectual knowledge, I've probably given you zilch this evening so far that you didn't know already. The whole purpose of saying it, and the purpose of saying it in this context, is to try to get you, and this is the reason why I keep throwing it back at you in some ways, to try and get you to connect it with your emotional experience of life. Yeah. Because although intellectually, I don't think probably many of you out there hearing what I've said this evening would disagree yeah, with that, with the, some of the things I've said. Certainly with the business of everything is impermanent, we live in a life of change, everything that we think is firm and stable is actually fluid. Um, actually, when we look at ourselves, yeah, we're pretty unstable, aren't we? You know, I don't mean that in any derogatory sense. You know, we're fairly unstable. There's you know, very little within us that remains stable and continuous. Think of yourself from, I don't know, age five to whatever age you are now. You've gone through enormous changes. You know, all the changes, which are the cultural changes, the educational changes, and everything that's happened to you in your life experience, all those changes, all your histories that, you know, that moulds and shapes and, and forms you into the person who sits on this cushion at this moment in time. Yeah, all of that has happened. So you are a changing phenomenon. Yeah? Yet, it's strange, isn't it? Emotionally, we almost demand a world that's unchanging. Yeah? And that's why I say, intellectually, none of this stuff is difficult to grasp. I'm not giving you new information. I'm not giving you the secret stuff that's being held back. Yet, emotionally, we're almost like children when it comes to this stuff. You know, to taking on board the simple changes that we encounter on a daily basis, the simple breakdowns of our inanimate objects you know, when they don't work on you or work for you. Yeah. Yeah, so we can intellectually accede, accede to the notion everything is impermanent. Yeah. We can accede to that really easily, can't we? Yeah, of course, one knows that everything is impermanent. Yeah. Notice the way you can distance yourself by going one. <laughs> one knows that everything is impermanent. Yet, when those little things happen, like you lose your pen, your car doesn't start, and that, there you are jumping with rage. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's happening invariably, but that's often what our emotional experience is, isn't it? That we, we don't actually go, oh yeah, it's impermanent. Yeah. We don't actually really emotionally coincide with that intellectual understanding of this. In fact, we often put that intellectual understanding even to one side. Although when it's pointed out in a, a situation like this, you might go, oh yeah, yeah it's, everything's impermanent. Well, impermanent, I dread to say this, but impermanent means you. You too are impermanent. <laughs> yeah, that means death. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I, when I was very young and I heard this stuff when I was in India, in, in monasteries in India and that, 
it was like kind of everything was going, yes, everything's impermanent, you know, death, I know everything's going to die. There's a little voice inside of me going, not me. <laughs> yeah. I'm the last one. That's gonna be, I'm going to be the one survivor <laughs> out of all this. Um, so again, when we don't emotionally take on this on board, we don't actually emotionally even take on board something which is really, really you know, close to home, which is our own sense of mortality, our own sense that we won't be around forever. Yeah. In Tibetan society, in which I lived for quite a long time, um, a common phrase that's used in Tibetan society, and you hear just ordinary Tibetans, not, not monastics or anything like that, talking this, that you usually say something like, you know, um, there's one thing that's absolutely certain, and somebody will reply almost like the chorus, and goes, yeah, death. One thing that's absolutely uncertain, the chorus again, when. <laughs> and then they'll generally sort of fall around laughing <laughs> at this stage. So this is not meant to be morbidly brooded over, the way we often take this in the West, but it's just simply, if you like, this is part of our existentiality, that we are these beings moving towards death at this stage. That's what impermanent mean, impermanence means. It means from the, the pen that doesn't work to your death. Everything on that spectrum, again, and this is dukkha. It's, it's not satisfactory. Yeah, most of us wouldn't really say, yeah, I really, really want to die. Yeah. Yeah, not unless you've got something really painful that perhaps, you know, that would want you to seek your own death. Most of us wouldn't willingly go into that position. So it's unsatisfactory. Yeah, it's not, not something we welcome necessarily or embrace. Certainly not emotionally, intellectually. Now, the Buddha was, through these strategies, helping us to encounter impermanence and to encounter something we're running away from. A, the impermanence. B, the dukkha. This sense of unsatisfactoriness. This sense of unsatisfactoriness. This word dukkha is a very interesting word in the original language. Um, it was often in ancient Vedic Sanskrit, which was the very ancient form of Sanskrit. It was used to describe the hole in a wheel, a you know, cartwheel, into which the axle fitted. And it was kind of packed with dirt and grease and grit, and it went round and round and round. And that was meant to be a simile or metaphor for the way life went round. It actually referred to the way that this life kind of wobbled. It didn't go smoothly. You know, just like an ancient cartwheel wouldn't. It wouldn't fit exactly, it would be very gritty, it would be a lot of friction there, and it would wobble as it went along. Does that feel like life at all? Yeah? yeah I don't know about you, but it certainly does to me. You know, it doesn't always go the way I want it to. And, you, know, you think it's stable, and suddenly it goes, look. <laughs> it wobbles again. You know, just when you think you're going in the right direction. Yeah. And that was dukkha. Dukkha was the hole in the wheel. It often referred as well to a, a hole that an arrow makes 
in you. you know, you've got an arrow stuck in you, you pull it out, you've got a great big hole left, which you know, in ancient India could e very easily become infected very quickly and superates. You know, in other words, you know, it would be full of nastiness there. And that was often used to describe, in a sense, um, that life often, and this sounds very dramatic and a bit um, harsh in many ways, that life often for a lot of us was like a superating wound yeah? that never quite healed, yeah? continued to be open and exposed and infected as well. It's very harsh, isn't it, as a, as a diagnosis. The Buddha wasn't the first person, by the way, in ancient India to speak about dukkha. Yeah, it, was, it was common language in ancient India. He was picking up on it and saying, however, that this is all I speak about. Yeah. I speak about dukkha, he says, and it's overcoming. Yeah. Now, let's face it, he doesn't mean that we're going to stop hurting if I, you know, if I bash myself against something or if I cut myself. Yeah? It's not that kind of pain that's going to go away. Yeah? So what exactly is he meaning when I'm saying, I'm teaching dukkha and I'm teaching the overcoming of dukkha? Well, in a sense, and I hope you can already see where I'm going with this, what he's actually saying is what we're dealing with is what we add to life situations, what we're adding to it. So yes, there can be the existential fact of getting older, getting ill, knowing I'm going to be mortal, cutting myself, hurting myself, suffering, as um, Hamlet would say, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in our daily lives. Yeah. And a lot of those things that happen to us you know, are outside of our control, aren't they? You know, no matter how much we want to control and manipulate the world and keep it safe, and that many of these things are outside of our control. So I'm going to continue in a way, and perhaps I deliberately will use this word, we're going to continue to suffer you know, from the things that happen to us. Yeah. I try as I may to stay healthy, I perhaps will still get the flu in the winter and feel lousy and horrible and that and that's you know could be suffering it could be just feeling lousy and this is unsatisfying you know i'd rather be healthy in these situations now the buddha is speaking very specifically about this in a way secondary form of dukkha not the primary form not the primary aspect of what is happening to you but what we're going to add to it. What do we add? Now, I'm kind of getting you to try and again engage with this in the thought experiment. What do we add to sickness that makes it even worse? Resistance? Aversion, perhaps? That simple not wanting this to be happening to me, I mean, even the kind of questions that people eat in, in extreme circumstances can say, why me? Why is this happening to me? Yeah. I suppose one of the answers could be, why not? Yeah. But why is it happening to me? That sense of almost being singled out by the universe for something. 
for it to happen to you. Now you can see there's a lot of mental anguish involved in that. There's a lot of mental distress, isn't there, involved in that. And that's actually something which we find very difficult to deal with. Very, very difficult to deal with. But it's an escalating level, isn't it? From very low levels of distress, of wanting something and not being able to get it, wanting to be with somebody and not being able to be with them, to you know, to the higher levels of distress, of perhaps getting really ill, wondering why you, and adding you know, that kind of resentment, anger sometimes, real aversion to not wanting to be in that situation. This is what the Buddha is speaking about. Part of his awakening, and I said I'd mention this, part of this waking up, which I said wasn't like waking up in the morning and walking around sleepwalking, was his waking up to the existential reality of life. And that that it was marked, actually, it was marked, it was characterized by a number of things that, act, that often we're trying to run away from. One of them I've spoken quite a lot about so far this evening, impermanence. Apart from when it works for you, then we're embracing it. Yeah. So we're often running away from that. We're running away from the fact that actually a great deal that that life is unsatisfactory. Yeah. Now, that is not to say, by the way, so please don't hear me saying, oh, life is miserable. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. But ultimately, it will not give you the kinds of satisfactions that you're looking for in something being permanent within that. Yeah. Can you hear the difference in that? I'm not saying life is miserable that just ultimately it doesn't culminate in a stopping place where this is absolute satisfaction. Now, we've tried that. We often try it in our own lives. We try to accumulate, make all the conditions right for living happier lives. Yeah? Get the place I want, live in the place I want, get the good goods that I want to have. Um, even be with the person I perhaps want to be with. Yeah. And how often are we still just miserable <laughs> in those situations? And, we, and in a way, that's really difficult to deal with, isn't it? Because I've now got everything I want, and I'm still miserable. <laughs> so the Buddha is saying there's actually something going on here that needs further you know, understanding and embracing. Yeah. That life is difficult, that it isn't one of giving us total satisfaction, but within that, and this is the big difference, he's saying there can be contentment, even within this, even within this difficult life. Now, I don't know about you, but I look around life, my own life and the lives of others, and I just see lots and lots of difficulty. But I also see joys. I see great happiness. I see laughter. I see pleasure in those lives. So those lives are not completely miserable. But those laughters, those joys, those happinesses, they also are impermanent. 
Yeah. They're also impermanent. They slip away. As I said earlier on, some of the you know, feelings, even when we're in those states, is tinged by the no notion or the knowledge that this is going to slip away at some point. This is going to change into something else. And it kind of tinges it, doesn't it? It's like the worm in the apple a bit, even when I've got it. I'm somehow aware that it's not going to run. This is too good to last. <laughs> Yeah, that sense. Now the Buddha is waking up to this and what he's wanting us to do is also wake up to this. Yeah. Wake up to the fact that there isn't anything that I can grab hold of that is absolutely permanent. There is no person, no thing that's going to remain the same, including you. Yeah. So it's characterized, life is characterized by being impermanent, by being unsatisfactory, and as you can see, the two are very closely related. Yeah. But also, and this is the third dimension of it, that even who you think you are is changing. Now, I would actually say that's good news. Because <laughs> if you weren't changing and there was no possibility of you changing, then go home. <laughs> you know, we could tinker around with the kind of peripheries, but we wouldn't do that much. Um, now, the Buddha's strategies are based on the idea, actually, how do we affect this change? How do we live the life, that, how do we live the change that we are in a way that adds to our human flourishing? That we can flourish within a changing world, being a changing phenomena as well. And in a sense, that is the task. And that's one of the tasks that this Strategy that we call meditation, more correctly, bhavana, cultivation, is directed towards. Yeah. It's directed towards having greater insight into these conditions, yeah. understanding more on an emotional level the impermanence that we are, that the world is, to understanding that sense of the unsatisfactoriness of things, and I can't actually, ultimately, I'll get a lot of pleasure, even if I get the most valued object I want, I'll get a lot of pleasure from it, but I won't get happiness from it. Not anything impermanent, not, not anything that's going to really, truly last. And so there's a realism embedded in, in the Buddha's views, a realism about life, which this... This epithet Buddha refers to somebody who's woken up. Yeah, that's what he's woken up to. He also said something else, which I really want to mention, and I'll pick up again in, in, in the second talk I'll give, which is that he says, my, my teaching has one taste, and the taste of my teaching is freedom. Now... It's a big word, isn't it, freedom? Yeah. And I think in the West, we have very particular notions of what freedom is. And usually, freedom gets associated with the freedom to. The freedom to do what I want to do. The freedom to live in the ways I want to live. Now, the Buddha doesn't completely discount that, but his freedom is a different freedom. It's the freedom from yeah. 
It's the freedom from certain things. Now, our behaviours, he's saying, are generally, and particularly the behaviours that, in some senses, exacerbate the condition that we find ourselves in, are driven by the tyranny of three fundamental factors. How shall I put it? I'm trying to put it in the easiest way as possible. A kind of rampant desire, which we might just simply call greed. Yeah, that's one of the things that drives a lot, a lot of our psychological processes. Yeah. So much so that in Buddhist psychology, you, know, you can trace unwholesome aspects of wanting back to that. Then there is a, a root which we would call aversion. Yeah. There's want and then there's don't want. Sums up a lot of our lives, doesn't it, really? Yeah. There's an awful lot of things I want and an awful lot of things I don't want. Sometimes the don't wants outweigh the wants. Yeah. But these are driving us. These are fundamental things which are driving habit patterns. You know, avoidance strategies, strategies of moving towards things, I think, are going to, to give me happiness. No. And all of that is being fueled by another psychological condition, which is confusion. Yeah? A fundamental state of confusion. Often this gets translated as ignorance, but it's more like a state of confusion that we find ourselves in. Yeah? I'm simply, ignorance sounds strange, and it's also very pejorative, isn't it, in Western languages, you know, to call somebody ignorant. To say they're confused, I think, lessens that sense, and I think is actually much more realistic and much more accurate to something the Buddha is saying is actually people are not necessarily bad people. We're not stupid, we're just confused a lot of the time. And that confusion gets fueled into thinking we can solve our problems by having, wanting, and avoiding. Yeah? Two big strategies in life, isn't it? Yeah? To move towards that which you think is going to give you happiness, to move away from that which you think is going to make you unhappy. And this is fundamentally fed by a confusion about the way life is. Yeah? Because we associate the happiness often with getting something we think might be permanent. Actually, it's not. It's impermanent. And so when we talk about freedom from, it's actually freedom from the tyranny of those three fundamental roots. Let's just put them in plain English. Greed, aversion, and confusion. That's what we're liberating ourselves from. The confusion actually is interesting. In, in Pali, uh, in this original language of Pali, the word is moha, which has a sense of stupefaction. It's like somebody's bonked you on the head and your eyes are swimming around. Like this. So you get a very confused view of the world, don't you? If that's something like that's happened to you, you just bashed your head. Yeah. So it's like stupefaction. I'm wandering around the world rather stupefied. Being born, I'll kind of try to wind this up and pull some of it together now for these last five, six minutes. Being born is a strange phenomenon, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I never got a user's manual for life. Life a user's manual when you were born. No, you didn't get it. Um, and being born is a bit like being dropped into a strange country, trying to find your way around. Yeah. 
Now, what you do is you dropped into this strange country. You don't really know your way around. Um, the valley you happen to be in is populated by people who try to tell you what, what is what and, and guide you around, but actually they're equally confused. They're called parents. <laughs> um, trying to guide you around things and to, and to see things in a particular way. And so what we do is we make the best of it. And I really want you to hear that tonight. We're trying to make the best of it. Now, from the Buddha's perspective, this best actually is coming out of confusion. You know? Hence the reason why we continue to find states of dissatisfaction, distress, unpleasantness, unhappiness, and sometimes real suffering out of this. Now, I despite the fact I've kind of tried to lighten this a little bit as I've gone through tonight, that is actually the condition lots of people find themselves in, real distress. Yeah. And the Buddha's path, this path to freedom, the freedom from the tyranny of what creates that distress, what creates that dukkha experience, that experience of unsatisfactoriness, of unpleasantness. It's almost like that background, even if it's not at the foreground, as I said earlier on, of your experience, it's probably there in the background. Just like that friction, just like that rubbing against the brick wall. Becoming more and more painful, gradually as you go through. As you find, you look at the strategies of dealing with things, and find that they don't work. Now, what the Buddha does is he opens us up to other strategies. One is getting to know what is actually going on for you. Getting us, and this is a really important part, and we both will be talking quite a lot about this either during the day and in the evening, getting to us to approach some of this stuff, and ourselves in particular, with a great deal more kindness and a great deal more friendliness. Yeah? Now, you've probably heard it said during the day, I certainly said it at one point, that the most fundamental act of kindness you can give to yourself is to, if you like, just simply turn around and acknowledge what is there for you at this moment. Now, that might be joy, and hope it is, but it might also be the stuff you didn't really want to think. The problems that have come up out of the past or even associated with the present that come up and can actually be real dukkha if I start adding stuff to it. Like, I don't want this. I must be a bad person to think this. And if you've been doing meditation for a while, sometimes this can make it worse, by the way. I've been meditating now for five years. I shouldn't be thinking thoughts like this. (laughs) I shouldn't be having these. Well, get used to it. You are. (laughs) You know? And it's, how do I approach that? Now, this approach to this is guided by an eye which I call the eye of kindness and friendliness. This can mature in our lives and it can make us move into a completely different relationship with all of those things that we're often desperate to avoid as well, that I don't want in my life can even orient us in a different way towards those things that I think are going to make me happy. Because I can see them for what they are. Now, I might still want them, but I don't now pretend that they're going to make me happy. 
they might give me pleasure. And that pleasure is fleeting and it's often decreasing. You know, things like that. So we have these strategies which the Buddha is giving us, which are these strategies of developing, ultimately, some kind of insightful attitudes. Yeah. By bumping up close, and coming up close, actually, to that which is happening at this moment. Now that which is happening might be very nice, but it might be very unpleasant. Yeah, And that's life. That's our minds, actually. The last thing we want to do in the strategy is, how would I put it? We've got dukkha enough, haven't we, in our lives. Ask yourself the question, do you want dukkha with compound interest? Because we can make it even more difficult for ourselves. And I think we actually do. Coming to approach this stuff with a kinder eye you know, actually begins to decrease that adding to this experience, making it worse than it is at this moment. Yeah. Now, we'll say a lot more about this. It's kind of scene setting, so I've probably thoroughly depressed you all this evening. Um, but it's kind of scene setting for, for where we're going. And part of this where we're going is learning to be in this present moment. Not because there's some glory to this present moment, but in this present moment, things are happening. And it's becoming more familiar with that. And being familiar with what's going on in this present moment isn't a self-fulfilling prophecy. It changes, it moves, it's evanescent, it's actually impermanent. Again, we're touching that, beginning to see that, and hopefully not adding our resistance in to this. I feel like I ought to stop now, and I will stop, um, but it's kind of to be continued. <laughs> That's the promissory note anyway, <laughs> at this stage. Okay, we'll finish there, um, and we have a walking period, but thank you everybody for your attention this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.